Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Special interview episode on Artemisia Gentileschi with the Her Half of History podcast. In this special interview episode, we're going to be talking about 17th century female painter Artemisia Gentileschi who overcame trauma and injustice early in her life to become one of the most well-known and successful painters of her time and the centuries to follow to this day. To talk about Artemisia, we brought in Laurie from Her Half of History podcast. But it's better if we let Laurie tell us about her podcast before we continue. Hi, this is Laurie from the Her Half of History podcast. I have always loved history but it didn't seem to have many women in it. Occasionally, my professors remembered that women existed, but they generally didn't have much to say beyond the position of women? Yeah, not good. Well, it turns out that that's not all there is to say. Humanity has had its ups and downs over the millennia, and women have been there every step of the way, making their contribution. In her half of history, I cover women's history in short episodes that fit into a series. Past series topics have included the extraordinary women who seized power, women who escaped slavery, and women in espionage. Since the vast majority of historical women were as ordinary as myself, I also cover what their lives were like, with topics like the history of housework, the history of getting married, and the history of women and their money. So if you ever sat in history class and wondered what the women were doing all that time, check out Her Half of History, available at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So now, without any further ado, over to the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Right, so Laurie, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. So uh, we're talking about an Italian uh, female painter, Artemisia Gentileschi. Now, we at uh, History of Italy haven't got to her period yet because she was born at the end of of the 1500s. She was born in, in 1593 in Rome. And so can you give us a little bit of context to um, the kind of Rome or the kind of country she would have been born into? Sure. Italy was still a long way from being the unified country that we now know and love. The area was split up into a number of different states. Some of them were independent, run by powerful families. Some of them were attached to the Spanish crown. And of course, some were directly ruled by the church. And Artemisia would move in between all of these states throughout her life without any problem about moving between those different kinds of places. The church was gaining ground at the time. We're still in the Counter-Reformation, where the church basically had to respond to all that Protestant heresy that was going on up north. (laughs) So we're about a century after Martin Luther caused his ruckus. We're about 60 years after Henry VIII declared himself the head of the English church. But in the Italian states, people were mostly rallying around Mother Church. The Council of Trent is 40 years in the past, so they've made some important reforms and improvements. In terms of art history, the Renaissance is basically over. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, they're all dead. The usual year for the end of the Renaissance is 1600, so Artemisia would have been seven. 
yeah. those dates are basically arbitrary because change happens gradually. So artists are no longer so interested in the balance, the order, the harmony, and the perfect proportions of the Renaissance. Now they're interested in emotion, contrast, dramatic lighting, and tension. It's very theatrical, and Artemisia's early work fits right into that aesthetic perfectly. Great. Yeah, that, that's uh, obviously dates are arbitrary. Some people would extend the Renaissance a bit to stick in a Bernini or somebody, but uh, right. I think 1600 is a, is a good estimate for uh, the end of something you can't really place an end to in the end. But, exactly. You know, we know as, as so, at least on my part, sort of historians, you're probably more a bit more serious than I am. We, we have to put some boundaries sometimes. So, okay. So, exactly. Um, her father was also a painter uh, and sort of it was he who initiated her to, to this art form. But he was sort of a very strict, uh, very authoritative man. Uh, she didn't have a lot of freedom in, in her early life. So, so what was their relationship like? So Orazio Gentileschi is a difficult character. On the plus side, he taught his daughter to paint. He didn't have to do that. A lot of fathers wouldn't have at that time period. The standard arts training was to apprentice for five to seven years in the workshop of a professional artist, starting somewhere between ages seven and 10. But that was only for boys. Girls didn't join art workshops. So in general, the only female painters there are are the ones who were the daughters of professional painters. And that, that's true of Artemisia. So Orazio was a moderately successful painter in Rome, and he also promoted her work, which he did not have to do. It was pretty common for masters to sign their own names to anything that came out of their workshop. So he didn't have to mention Artemisia at all, but he did. He was proud of her, and he promoted her name when he realized how good she was. That's all in the plus column as a father. On the other hand, he had a reputation for being hard to work with. And it hurt him professionally. On a couple of occasions, we know he didn't get jobs because people said, no, you really don't want to work with him. And there are some indications that all was not perfect at home either. His wife died young, so Artemisia didn't have a mother to help her. The sources on their family life are not necessarily trustworthy, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But there are indications that Orazio maybe sometimes stayed out all night and came home at dawn. So not really providing his daughter with the care and protection that she probably needed. Also that he tried to pressure her into joining a convent, which doesn't seem like great parenting to us, but it was hardly unusual at the time. There's actually a solid reason why he might want her to do that. Generally speaking, placing a girl in a convent was only half as pricey as providing her with a dowry. And he was not a rich man. So this was probably a financial issue. Years later, Artemisia herself provided a marriage for her own daughter, and she states quite baldly in a letter that this marriage has broken me. I am bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's sad that that's the way it was, but that that's why it was better to have a boy in your family than a girl, because yeah. girls were yeah. very expensive to provide for. It's not that they didn't love their daughters. They did love them. It's just expressing that love was expensive. Exactly, exactly. Well, even if you had a second son, sometimes you had to stick him, you know, hope to get an, ab an abbacy or something for him or right. put him in a monastery. Right. So. There are also some more disturbing accusations. Orazio may have used her as a nude model for his own art. And there's also an accusation that he was sexually abusing her. But like I said, the sources are not trustworthy. And that accusation is not from Artemisia. So it's really it's really kind of hard to know exactly what their relationship was. OK. And uh, it's also interesting that you mentioned that the fact that an artist or master would put his name on anything that came out of the workshop. Because we often imagine masterpieces like, you know, Leonardo's Last Supper, 
painted only by Neil Nyan, the slaving over, but it would have been a whole team of people right. working on the project. So Right, it's hard to tell. And art historians will argue about that, often using very technical arguments that I am not qualified no, to even understand. Neither am I, neither am I. Okay, so speaking of her uh, her life, her early life, she, at a very young age, she was marked, her, her life was marked by a very tragic event and, and a great injustice. So can you tell us something about that? Right. Orazio had a friend named Agostino Tassi. He was also a painter and they had collaborated professionally. Orazio also hired Agostino to teach Artemisia perspective in drawing. And that was a bad decision. Agostino already had a criminal record. He's a pretty unsavory character. And in 1612, Orazio brought a lawsuit against him for raping Artemisia. And so this lawsuit ended up in a trial. And what can yes. you tell us about this trial? Oh, it's revolting. If you think of the very worst of the celebrity trials we've had in recent years surrounding sexual harassment and assault, this trial was all that nastiness and more so. We have the transcripts. We have everything that was said and done through this months-long process. And historically, that's very interesting. On a human anguish level, it's disgusting. You have all the typical he said, she said. There's also the standard character assassination. Agostino claimed that Artemisia was just a whore who had lovers all over town. He brought in witnesses to say that everyone knew that. Agostino is also the one who said that Orazio was sleeping with his own daughter, which is why you can't necessarily take that as truth. On the other side, Orazio also lied. He lied about how old Artemisia was. He made her younger than she mm -hmm. really was, presumably on the theory that the younger she is, the worse this is. The crime will seem, yeah. Exactly. And he also brought in witnesses to say everyone knew Artemisia was a virgin and an honest woman until Agostino showed up. Mm -hmm. The only one that comes out with their credibility intact is actually Artemisia. The transcripts of her statements are clear, they're consistent, and they seem calm, though it's hard to judge calmness from a transcript. You know, you don't yeah, you don't see any of the facial expressions <laughs> or exactly, anything yeah. Yeah, like that. At least that. from the language she used. Yeah. Right, exactly. There are a few major differences, though, between this trial and a modern trial of the kind. For one thing, Artemisia had to endure a physical examination to prove her lack of virginity. It seems pointless because neither side was claiming she was a virgin at that point. So why why do that? But they did. And if I understand correctly, worse, a very public examination as well. So. Yes, yes. There were people present to witness mm. this. And even worse, she was subjected to torture. They had a device where strings or chains, I've, I've seen it translated both ways, they were tied around her fingers and then gradually tightened while the questions were put to her, but she maintained her story. Though the judge was openly skeptical of Agostino Tassi, no one apparently felt the need to torture him to get the truth. So you can you can make what you will of that. Yeah, and it's particularly uh, significant, you know, uh, torturing the fingers of an artist. So it's you know exactly probably... it could have been permanent. Yes. It could have been crippling. And then there's also a major difference between then and now, which is what everyone, including Artemisia, thought the, the solution to rape was. If Agostino Tassi had just married her, then everything would be fine. You know, from a modern perspective, that seems like the worst possible outcome. But Artemisia admits that she had a subsequent sexual relationship with him precisely because he kept saying he would marry her. In fact, he was already married. So that wasn't an option. She just didn't know that. 
And the suit was only brought when it became clear he was never going to, going marry, to marry her. her. Exactly. So between the so, rape and the and the lawsuit, quite quite a bit of time passed. Right, right. Months, months. Um, so in the end, the court actually ruled in the Gentileski's favor. So that's good. But they didn't get any kind of settlement. Orazio probably was hoping that Tassi would be forced to pay a dowry. But he didn't. He was exiled from Rome for five years, but it wasn't enforced. Within a month of the trial, he was back in town accepting commissions just like nothing had ever happened. It was over. So great injustice as well as the uh, yes the, the, the violence that she had to undergo there. So right. It's actually interesting. Maybe this could be a future her half of history episode. There is a wonderful figure in the history of Sardinia, which is Eleonora d'Arborea. And she set out a series of laws called the, the Carta de Logo, which collected the Sardinian laws. And under Sardinian law, so they were way ahead of anybody else. If you, if a woman was raped, she then had the right for the, the rapist to choose to, to pay for her dowry with the man of her choice. And oh. if he failed to do so, he would have the, uh, let's say, offending member cut off. Uh, so quite wow. drastic in, the, in that sense. Yes. So it That's would have very been progressive in yes. a way. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a very interesting figure, Eleonora d'Arborea. So. Okay. Um, so then after this terrible ordeal, uh, she ended up getting married and moving away to Florence. And so what was that period like for her? Yes. So she gets married very quickly after the trial, and you have to, you have to wonder what, what exactly happened there. I mean, the whole issue was she was no longer a virgin, and she didn't have money for a dowry or probably didn't. And then all of a sudden she's married. I can find no details of that marriage. The man she married, Stiatesi, he has the same name as a as a friend who testified on her behalf mm -hmm. in the trial. So probably, you know, a family friend who maybe took some pity on her. Yeah. Or, or can we maybe hope no. that true love possibly <laughs> uh maybe maybe temporarily it doesn't okay. it doesn't stay that way it doesn't end well okay <laughs> no it doesn't okay oh um but moving away was was probably the best solution for her at that point is just to get out of town unfortunately and professionally it's it's good for us as well he's no longer attached to orazio's workshop she's definitely not attached to agostino tassi's workshop so it's it's sink or swim on her own merits. She'll either succeed or she'll fail, but it will be because of her own work. And she's really successful. The Medici family in Florence supported her work and gave her commissions. She was the first woman ever admitted to the state-sponsored Academia del Diseño. So her reputation grew, especially for painting strong women. In modern times, her most famous painting is the one done right after the rape trial. And it's a painting of Judith, who's from the Catholic Bible, but not the English Protestant Bible that I'm more familiar with. Anyway, Judith was a great hero who saved the children of Israel from an invading army by going into the enemy camp, getting the general drunk, and then chopping off his head. Mm -hmm. And Artemisia's depiction is of the very bloodiest moment. A very strong Judith has her sword right in the man's neck and there's blood spurting out. It's really one of the most violent paintings of the entire period. And you can imagine that feminists have had a heyday with this. I mean, she paints this right after the rape trial. Clearly, this is feminist rage, right? Other people have, have kind of pushed back against that and said, you know, to reduce her into nothing but a scorned woman, a feminazi, is also mm -hmm. reductive and stereotypical. And the woman had depth. 
So, you know, whatever you think on that, but the sequence is there. There's a rape trial and then there's this very there's violent very painting. Very violent painting, yeah. Exactly. Which is and an she interesting would subject as well, that Judith and the, uh, was it Oleophanes, I think, the, the, the general. Yes. Uh, and it's also, you can actually see it in one of the, the least feminist places in the world, which is the, the St. Peter's in the Vatican. There is a couple of representations of the scene as well. So of Judith, yes. Yeah, yeah, it, was yeah. A, it was a popular subject and... Artemisia would return to it several times. She painted several Judiths and her maidservants, but it was never again as violent as that particular one. And she also painted other strong women. Um, she painted Cleopatra. She painted Greek mythological women. Some of them were female nudes, which at her point in time was still much rarer than the male nudes that were already being done by many artists. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we were saying before that it may not have been true love, at least if it was only at the beginning. So what was her private life at her time in at the time in Florence? Well, she's married, so that's an automatic boost in social status for a mm -hmm. woman at the time. However, her husband barely gets a mention anywhere. One of my sources actually refers to him as a non-entity. Mm. Um, they would eventually part ways to the extent that in later life, she had to write a letter asking a friend if, if her husband was still alive or not. Oh, she wow. didn't even know. <laughs> but in Florence, she did, you know, they were still together. She gave birth five times, but only one daughter survived. That's pretty brutal, mm. but not that uncommon. And she's also known to have had a love affair in Florence. So again, you don't know exactly what was going on between husband and wife, but it doesn't, it doesn't really sound like true love. Okay. And so then after the period in Florence, she goes back to Rome. So why was that? And, and then, you know, did that being back home work out for her? Well, the best guess for the reason is, is financial. In 1621, the Grand Duke died. That's Cosimo II of the Medici family. And that's unsettling for someone who depends on patronage to get by. Rome had a fair amount of art patronage because the church was building churches and decorating altarpieces all over the city, but none of those commissions went to Artemisia. It's possible that the church never considered her as a woman. Maybe they never considered her as a deflowered woman, but it's also possible that they did consider her and rejected her on the grounds that a woman famous for painting women with swords or women without their clothes on was not really the look that they were going for okay. in their churches. It's hard to know. So yeah. she she did have commissions there, but they came from the nobility, not from the church, which was the major patron. Okay. And so before, Laurie, you were saying she would have traveled around the various uh, groupings of duchies and uh, kingdoms and, and whatnot in Italy at the time. Uh, so next, uh, Venice. And so what do we know about her time in Venice? Well, this is the least documented part of her life. Some mm -hmm. of the earlier biographies of her don't even mention it because we didn't know she was there. But she is mentioned in some Venetian poems at the time. She's actually mentioned quite a lot compared with other contemporary artists. So that probably means she was in vogue with the cultural scene in Venice. There's even one reference to her as a singer. So maybe oh. she's a multi-talented woman. Excellent. But there aren't any documented letters or surviving paintings from this period. It's possible that her husband was still with her then, but even that we we don't know. Okay. And then after Venice, it was down to Naples. And so what was that phase of her life like? Right. So by the time she gets to Naples, around 1630, she's there as a single mother, supporting herself and her daughter. The husband is completely out of the picture. Naples was the biggest city in Italy, much bigger than Rome. It was one of the biggest cities in Europe, and Artemisia didn't like it. It was dirty, dangerous, and expensive. 
But the thing about big cities is that there are more potential patrons. That's almost certainly why she went and why she stayed in a place that she didn't like. She was clearly part of the cultural life of the city. There are poets here who also mention her. And we have letters from her. They're mostly business letters written to patrons about payments, and she is no pushover. There are places where she refuses to accept a reduction in payment, places where she insists on a deposit, places where she admits that a woman's name raises doubts, but she's confident that the work will speak for itself when seen. And at one point, she makes the memorable statement that you will find the spirit of a Caesar in the soul of a woman. Uh, good on her. Yes, definitely. Yes. Good, a good uh, business mind as well. Though. Right, right. Okay, so so Naples becomes, in a certain sense, her new home. You were saying she's not crazy about it, but she does become relatively successful in Naples, also thanks to the business acumen you mentioned. But we know that she also made a sneaky little trip to England in this period. Do we know anything about that? And was there a, a kind of reunion with her father who may have been in England? Yes, that is exactly right. She went to England to work court of Charles I. And if you're up on your English royal history, you'll know him as the guy who would eventually get his head cut off after refusing to work with Parliament. And then we have the English Revolution. But at this point, his head was still attached and he was building a palace for his queen. And he was using Charles. <laughs> yes. Charles was a great patron of the arts and he wanted to collect not only Italian art, but Italian artists. And he had hired Orazio Gentileschi to do the paintings for the ceiling in the big hall of the Queen's house. And it's a big project. It's 40 square feet. Orazio, by this point, is about 75 years old, probably still a difficult personality. I'm not super clear on whether Orazio thought he needed help or maybe if Charles I had doubts that this project was actually going to get done. But Artemisia was brought in to help and to make sure that the job actually got done. Got done and it yeah. And it did. They finished it. Unfortunately for Artemisia, it got done with Orazio's name attached, ah, only his name attached. <laughs> so in the 20th century, art historians argue about which parts were his and which parts were Artemisia's, and they don't agree on uh, the answers. Um, he died shortly after it was done, and Artemisia headed back to Naples, which was probably a good move because things were heating up in England. In fact, the, the whole house was shut up and not seen by anyone because the queen who was supposed to live in it fled the country okay. and is it visible today or has it been destroyed uh... no i it's it's still it's still visible yeah okay there's also my personal favorite of artemisia's paintings it wasn't part of that ceiling but it's still in the english royal trust because it was purchased by charles when it, when she was there and it's called variously the self-portrait or the allegory of painting or maybe self-portrait as the allegory of painting there's a lot of argument about whether it's really a self-portrait or not but it's definitely a painting of a woman painting okay. and that's not yes exactly and that's not that unusual but what is unusual about it is that usually when artists paint themselves painting you can look at either the artist or you can look at whatever they're painting on the canvas in the picture and her canvas is blank She's, ah. she's there with the paintbrush. So it's the moment right before creation where oh, anything wow. is still possible. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of read into that. She, she I think she thought of herself as a self-made woman. She was her own creation. You know, she wasn't following any of the role models that were provided for her. Mm -hmm. So she's she's creating herself and it's clean from slate, a blank canvas. Yeah, in a certain it, sense. It, also exactly. figurative and, and in a real sense, a clean canvas in this case. Right. Wow, that, that's, that's lovely. And um, what about her death? Did she end up having a, a tranquil, happy, happy death, as happy as it can be, let's say? <laughs> I mean, does the story end well for her? 
Well, she goes back to Naples, continues painting. Uh, she dies in 1656, and there aren't a lot of details about it. Our main indication that she actually died was a couple of lewd verses that mention her death as an immoral woman who also happened to paint. And many art historians have complained that even after a very successful career, she's still suffering the consequences of that decades-old rape trial. However, more recently, one historian has panned out to look at the entire book where those verses appear, and it seems that it's just the way the author talked about all women, okay. all of them. There's, so it doesn't necessarily General, say yes. anything about her or her choices or her life or how she was viewed. That's that's just unfortunately how you talk about women. Okay, so in general then, what, what is it about her painting that was so important, so innovative? And what about her legacy now? Or after, in, in the centuries after her death, let's say. Right. Artemisia is now rightly recognized as one of the masters of Baroque painting. Her paintings are every bit as good and in many cases better than that of her male colleagues. Artistically, her great innovation was to place women as realistic protagonists in the scene. Some art historians have said that she's the very first in art history to do that. Before her, women tended to be either passive or just a caricature of youthful beauty, whereas she paints middle-aged women, you know, women doing things. This has led to a little bit of a problem in her legacy, though, because it seems like she could only paint women, that she was limited in that way, which is not quite true. We do know of some paintings of men, and it's also been suggested that we find the paintings of women because that's what we're looking for. Mm. She may have many yet-to-be-identified paintings of men, but we don't think to attribute them to her. There are lots of paintings that don't have an artist attached, or maybe they're misattributed to someone else. Okay, so yeah, there would have been certain traits about the female figures that right. are more easily recognizable as an Artemisia Gentileschi painting. Okay. Yes. She also proved that a woman could do this, not just artistically, but financially. She found enough patrons to support herself. It's a great business success. And then finally, unlike many other female painters, she was never forgotten. There's never a period at which no one knew she existed. And then some art historian in the archives digs her out of total obscurity. That happens with many other women artists. But Artemisia was successful enough to be in the record all the way along. It's true that some of her paintings were misattributed and you know, art historians are still disagreeing about which ones or how many, but at least some have always had her name attached. So she's been mentioned all the way along. And that's unusual in many ways. Great. And on a personal level, Laurie, obviously when, when you're researching somebody, you you spend so much time with them, you, you live through their eyes, you live in their shoes. W what did you get out of your relationship with Artemisia? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. So I'm I'm currently studying a lot of female painters because I do mine in terms of a thematic approach. So right now I'm doing painters. And she is by far the most obvious feminist painter. You know, she's not just a painter who happens to be a woman. Mm -hmm. She's a painter who is using being a woman as part of her expression. Okay. And so I did I did find that a little bit interesting when you put that together with her life experience that for her being a woman was extremely important as opposed to just a fact. It might be a fact. Great. Laurie, thank you so much. That was really interesting. We get to, we got a good look there at the life of the, this incredible figure of Italian art and history. And hopefully we'll be able to work together again in the future. Yes, I hope so. Great. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed that interview. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like access to extra content and ad-free episodes, you can become a Patreon supporter by going to our website at ahistoryofitaly.com, going to the support page, and clicking through to Patreon. Make sure you check out Laurie's Her Half of History wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.